Good morning again. Thank you, Bill. I like that Bill went and gave us some good chronicles, lots of names that are hard to say and remember, but we, we have faint memory. We remember these names. We've read them. We, we get into numbers. We get into chronicles. But there are so many names. There are so many people beget so many people. Some of these people are very important. We're going to talk about some of these people in First Chronicles, and they're mentioned in several other books of the Bible, Exodus, Jude, and Psalms. We're going to go to Psalm 84. So we're going to spend our time today. We'll go to a few other places. I'm going to read this psalm to start, and then we'll, we'll go back, we'll look at some things, some other books, and then we'll go back and dwell on this psalm. Psalm 84. I'm reading out of the ESV. It's going to be on the screens. I've got a couple of... I know a lot of us, I use it too, a lot of us read on the New King James. There's a couple of differences in the, the way they translated the English of, of this. I'll look at a couple of them. They're not, they don't change any meaning here. In the Psalms, you have what's called a superscription. That is the above writing. And that is the little headings you have on your Psalms. And I've talked about this before when dealing with Psalms. Those headings are part of the Bible, but they are considered by most scholars throughout church history a little bit different than the the text. They're descriptive, and here's one thing about them. There's all kinds of things in them. We don't know what they mean, but we've left them in there so that we see that they were instructions. And so this one says, to the choir master, or the chief musician, if you're reading New King James, according to the Gittith, on an instrument of Gath, in New King James says, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king, and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. They are the hymn book of the church. They are the hymn book of Israel. They cover the gamut of emotions and they have history and they have prayer. And they are beautiful and hard to understand at times. They are soothing and confusing. 
different times, sometimes all the same time. But they are a songbook. The songs, the psalms were put together to be part of the worship at the temple and of the people of God. And that's true today. They continue in that. So let's sing this psalm. Ready, everybody? You know the tune? We don't know the tune. We do know that in the superscription it says, on an instrument of Gath, according to the Gatith. So when your New King James says, on an instrument of Gath, that's a really loose idea. Somebody saying, maybe that's what this means. And when the ESV and some other versions say, according to the Gatith, they're saying, maybe this is according to the tune or the method of singing. The superscriptions are so mysterious as to what they mean. But they're instructions of how you present this sometimes. Another thing that we don't understand, we don't know what it means, is the word Selah. It is all throughout the Psalms. And I promise you, you may see translators, you may see commentaries, you may see devotionals say, well, it means this. There's no definitive answer to what Selah means. There's really no leading to what it means. It could be pause and reflect. It could mean that. We don't know if it means that. It could mean blast the trumpets here. We don't know what it means. But it means something, and it's throughout the Psalms. Is it okay that we don't know what it means? Yes. The depths of the riches here, but there is a pattern, and there's something musical about it. Uh, if you know music, you know that within a piece of music, there are a million things that mean stuff. But you can sing, and you can enjoy, and you can do it beautifully and not know what all those things mean when you know the tune, when you know the lyric. So that's what we're going to do in this psalm today, is we're going to talk about the lyric. If you're going to sing a song, you're going to sing it well, you need to know the lyric. You need to know the tune. You need to know the dynamics between getting very quiet and getting very loud, speeding up, slowing down. And then last, and probably most important, is you have to decide to take part in singing the song. You have to take part in the worship. So we're going to talk about those four aspects of this. The lyric, what does it mean? The tune, what, is, what, is, what does it sound like? What does it feel like, more important? And will I take part? A couple of other things I want to say on the translation real quick. In verse 2, and these are great. It's good to study different translations because, remember, the translations you read are all coming from the same Hebrew, in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew words just don't always translate exactly to an English word. So translators make choices to say... We're going to lean this way. So the ESV there in verse 2 says, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The translators of the New King James said, My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So cry out and sing. You could say, well, those are two totally different things. Or you could say, those are very much the same things. If I'm singing with passion, crying out in a song. If I'm crying out, is it not like a song of my heart? Let's go to verse 4, a little variation there. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That's ESV. King James says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Those mean the same thing. Ever singing your praise, they will still be. I would say that they will still be is kind of a jilted way to say English. Uh, ever praising you. That means the same thing. They will ever be praising you, and they still are. They now and forever will be those who dwell in your house. Verse 5, 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, says the ESV. New King James says, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. So let's look about what that means. This is a psalm very much about where the Lord is. And in ancient Israel, the Lord dwelt in a special way. The Lord is everywhere. He's omnipresent. We've invented that word to to say what is true, which is that the Lord is present everywhere. But he made himself present in a special way in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And it was the point of worship for Israel, for the Jews. And they could not all be in the temple all the time. There were some who were, and that's the people who wrote this song who are singing here. They're singing about how great it is to be right there. But most of the nation had to plant crops and tend sheep. And some of them had to fight, defend the country. They had to do different things, raise their kids. They couldn't spend all their time in the temple, nor was there enough room. But what the Lord required is that every year they would make pilgrimage to the temple to to go there, to see this wonder of the Lord's special presence there, to see how he had designed the worship there. And so there would be a normal pilgrimage. So when it says those set on pilgrimage, translation says something of the highways to Zion, well, you take a pilgrimage, it takes roads. It takes a way to get there. And so that's, that's the difference there in how they've translated that. In verse 11, I think it's an interesting variation in these translations. It says, for the Lord, God, is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And New King James says, the Lord will give grace and glory. So let's put those words against each other. Favor and grace. When we, we use the word grace a lot, it's in scripture, it's in uh, church history, it is a foundation of our belief is grace. We use it to denote a lot of things. Uh, we can say grace is salvation, it's true. We could say grace is that God made himself known to us. That's grace. We could say that the breath I take that I don't drop into the grave today is a grace. We can say that when I drop into the grave and I go to heaven, that's a grace. There, is many, there are many graces. And this translation of saying favor, I think, is a good way to kind of get grace. Grace is a gift. It is, we have been favored with grace. The danger of some of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel you, you hear and you hear people use the language is uh, they'll, something good will happen. They'll say, well, I'm, they'll take Mary's words or Hannah and say, I'm, I'm blessed and highly favored because good things happen to me. Think, every believer is highly favored. Every grace we have is from God and we have been shown the favor of God. It's not just because something great happened or you know, somebody paid our grocery bill before us. We're all favored by God if we are believers. And glory, the translation ESV says honor. Glory and honor. Glory is another word in the Bible that has different meanings in that we can glory as a verb, as an action. Or we can talk about the glory of God, which is an aspect of of him, or maybe a noun, an adjective describing him, or a thing itself, the glory and there's a glory that we have that the Lord gives us and will give us more of. He says the Lord will give grace and glory, favor and honor. So, so those are ways to look at those. And <clears throat> Verse 1 starts as well. How lovely is your tabernacle? And ESV says, how lovely is your dwelling place? When the New Testament it says the Lord 
come to dwell with us. The translation is the same as he will tabernacle with us. The same word is dwell and tabernacle. He will be with us. He will set up his tent with us. So back to the superscription on this. We're trying to get the lyrics down here. It says, a psalm of the sons of Korah. If you remember when Moses, the, the children of Israel, they're wandering, they're, they're at Sinai, and he has, has been given the law, and there's a rebellion in the camp. Uh, some want to go back to Egypt, but some want to worship the golden calf. And there's other times when some just want to do things different. And Moses is the appointed leader, and he has been given the instructions from God. And one of this groups is a tragic story. If you go to Numbers 16, we're not going to read the whole thing because it's the whole chapter. But we get some background on Korah and his kin. And in the, in the Old Testament, in New Testament too, when it says the sons of, that does not always mean the direct descendants of, like, here's my two sons. It means the whole lineage of. And it can be a little hard to understand because it can say the sons of Korah hundreds of years after Korah and his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons are long gone, but they're still sons of Korah. They are part of the lineage of Korah, the family of Korah, just like all of Israel is the sons of Abraham. Many, many generations, they still are the sons of Abraham. So Korah, if you get to 16, you have Korah's rebellion. And Korah rebels against Moses And the Lord punishes them by opening up the earth and swallowing all these people. But not all of the sons of Korah die. Some continue on. And what we find is that the Lord restores and the Lord uses. So if you look at the sons of Korah in number 16, you would think, well, that's a bad group. The Lord got rid of them. But there remain some sons of Korah. And they are given a job. If you'll turn to uh, 1 Chronicles 9. Let me give you several references in 1 Chronicles. Verse 19, Shalom, the son of Kor, son of Ebiasaph, son of Korah, and his kinsmen of his father's house, the Korites, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the threshold of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. So they are part of the Levites, and they are given a job at the tabernacle. They're given a job at the temple. Turn to um, the reference. First Chronicles twenty-six, verse one. As for the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Korites, Meshelamiah, the son of Kor, and the sons of Asaph. And then there's a whole lot of sons. I'll skip that. Verse twelve. These divisions of the gatekeepers corresponding to their chief men had duties, just as their brothers did, ministering in the house of the Lord. And they cast lots by father's houses, small and great alike, for their gates. The lot for the east fell to Shelemiah. They cast lots also for his son, Zechariah, a shrewd counselor, and his lot came out for the north. Obed-Edom's came out for the south, and to his sons was allotted the gatehouse. For Shupem and Hosa, it came out for the west. At the gate of, it's getting hard here, Sheleketh, on the road that goes up, watch corresponded to watch. On the east there were six each day, on the north four each day, and on the south four each day, as well as two 
and two at the gatehouse. And for the colonnade on the west, there were four at the road and two at the colonnade. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the Korahites and the sons of Merari. So the Korahites, whatever's remained of them, they they have an important role. Gatekeepers of the tabernacle and then the, the temple, they have a role to play. They are part of the worship. This is a loose very loose, but we have people in our greeters ministry, people that, that handle the doors. You would have a lot more to do if you were one of the, the greeters. They were taking care of the temple. It was part of their job. This was their job. They were part of the Levites, who were the one tribe set apart for the worship and to maintain the tabernacle, to maintain the, t- the temple. And this didn't mean they just showed up once a week. This was their full-time job, maintaining the worship. Uh, go to First uh, Chronicle 25. Just go back one. The Korites have a very important job. It says in the first verse of 25, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Haman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. And if you go on and you read and you, you get through the fine details of this, you find that some of these people that are being called out as Part of the worship, the singing, the instruments are sons of Korah. So these people that their descendants had rebelled, been punished, and been made an example. It's called, they're called out in Jude as an example. Don't be like the sons of Korah. That was not the end of this people. They were people that worshipped God and years later would create this psalm. Now, there are debates as to who wrote all of the psalms. Most of the psalms are written by David. But they're not all written by David. There are psalms that in the superscription, in the heading, say they are written by the sons of Korah, and there are some others. The sons of Korah have quite a few psalms, 11 or 12, I think, 12. And this is one of them. As we go, as we're studying this lyric in the time and place, we have to move ourselves back to the place where these people wrote this psalm. And then we will move ourselves forward with it to us and our place where we read and worship with this psalm and should be challenged by it. It says, how lovely is, I'm going to walk through it now, piece by piece. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. We'll stop there. Now, some people attribute this song to David or to a son of Korah. I think we should say the sons of Korah. And they say, well, this is somebody who is not at the temple. So maybe this is during the exile and somebody is longing for the temple That makes sense with this, but I think we don't have to go there. If you're a doorkeeper to the house of the Lord, as the sons of Korah were, they kept the doors, they kept the gates, you're at the temple. And the way I see this is this is not somebody who's away from the temple. They are at the temple, and they are there, and they're there day after day after day, year after year. It is their life to worship God and be involved in the worship of God at the temple, and they look at the place they are and say, how lovely is this place that I am at your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Does it apply to the person who's away and longs for it? Yes, it does. It it means much the same to say, if I'm away and I say, I can know what the temple is and I long to be there, how lovely is your dwelling place? Yes, that also has that meaning. But I think this is the sons of Korah. They're saying, how lovely. They sing this song while they work. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy 
to the living God. Then we get to this section about birds. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. There's some deep meaning. This, what's great about the Psalms is good poetry is sometimes there's levels of meaning here. You can understand there's imagery. And so we, we have this. Is this imagery or is this real? Even the sparrow finds a home. You go read some commentaries and they'll say, well, that means your kids can go to the temple. They're your little sparrows. Now, I think what this means is the sons of Korah, they work at the temple. The temple has open courts and it's also an ancient building. You've been to big box stores, H-E-B, Lowe's. What do they have in those? that they didn't put in there? Birds. (laughs) There's always birds in these big stores. But you can imagine the temple, particularly open courts, the loop, maybe your house. Uh, What do we have that likes to hang out on the overpasses around here? We have little birds, mud swallows. They, They build their nests underneath there for the shade. It reminds them of the cliffs, wherever those could be. Um, But those birds, they build their nests. So somehow in the temple... It's very easy to understand and to to believe that what they're talking about is there are birds who have taken up residence in the temple. Small birds. The sparrow. Sparrow is a tiny little bird. The sparrow finds a home. And the swallow, a nest for herself. So two types of birds we're talking about here. Swallows like like to fly. But when they need to bear their young, they can't just keep flying. They find a nest. They build a nest. And what the author of the psalm is saying is that, and I just imagine they're writing this on the steps of the temple. They're just looking at this, inspired, and they say, there's birds here. We'd love to be in the temple too. God created them. And they they find a place of rest, a a place of peace. You build your nest where it's safe for your young. At your altars, O Lord. So the birds are building nests at the altars, and they're safe to be there. Now, does altar mean the actual place of the sacrifice? Or does it mean the temple? It could. That word could stand for the greater or the smaller. We'll see that throughout any psalm. And in this psalm, sometimes it's unclear, but it works. And he says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. I think that this has a double meaning. If we've been talking about birds dwelling in the house of the Lord, they're hanging out and they're making their nest in the the Levites and the sons of Korah that work in the temple and sons of Asaph and many others. They're familiar with these birds and they're glad they're there. And they say, you know what? Blessed are those who sing in your temple. You think they're referring to the birds? They might be. I think they're referring to both. I think there's a play on words here. That the birds sing. And in the temple, one of the things you hear with the temple worship and the song is you hear birds singing. And birds are important. What, where do we get a message about the importance of birds? Jesus says, the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground except the Lord knows and the Lord provides and they they are fed by the Lord. And then he says something great. He says, of how much greater value are you than the birds? So now take that back into Psalm 84. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Yes, the birds tweet, but what else is going on in the, the house of the Lord? Praise, worship, song, sung by people. Some by worshipers, believers, those who trust in the Lord. And he says, this is the first blessing of of Psalm 84, that those who sing in the house of the Lord that sing praises are blessed. 
And then he has another blessing right after that, verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. So we have this first section that ends there. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, verse 4, ever singing your praise. We have a selah, whatever that means. We have a turn or a pause or something. Or, but we have a break in this section. We can kind of break this into parts. So we have this first section that's dealing with being in the presence, being in the house of the Lord, being in the dwelling place. And then the next section starts for those who are on their way, who are not there. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And I like what the New King James says, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Those who are on their way here. And for Israel, you should either be in it, or you should at some point be on your way to the temple. You should be making your pilgrimage to the feasts, to the sacrifice. And he said that blessed are those who do it. And how do you do it? You do it in the strength of the Lord. You approach the Lord in the strength of the Lord. You go to the Lord's dwelling place in the strength of the Lord. None could do it without the strength of the Lord. None could do it without the grace of the Lord. What would happen if we approached the dwelling place of the Lord sinfully? Throughout Scripture, it tells us that's a bad thing. You will be destroyed. Nobody approaches the dwelling place of the Lord in sin, but we're covered. As Christians, we look at this and we know that we approach joyfully by the grace, the favor we've been shown in Christ. And they approached in that same favor, the different understanding. They didn't, it was not all clear about Christ, but their faith was in the Lord and the forgiveness they had through the sacrifices that looked to the final sacrifice of Christ. As these people that are traveling on the highways to Zion, and we'll come back and talk about Zion for a second, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of spring. So the valley of Baca, another mysterious term, but it's a dry place. You can just get from the context here. You don't have to understand or know where the valley of Baca is. And you have to imagine that lots of people are approaching Jerusalem from many directions. They're not all going through the same valley. But the valley of Baca is a place that describes a dry and why do we, how can we know that even without going and looking up Baca or anything? Because the contrast it says here. They go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. So it has become a place of springs, of water. What does that mean if it became that, that it was a place of dryness? It was a harsh place. And if you go to the land of Israel, then as in now, it's not all that different than places in our part of the world. There's some dry places there. There's also some beautiful places of, of, of water and springs. But he says, those who are on the way to Zion that are coming, that are pilgrimaging there, as they go through the dry valleys, they make the valleys a spring. I want to go back now. Imagine some, somewhere I've gone. How many have gone to some? You've gone to Monaghan Sandhills. That's a place a lot of us have gone. White Sands, pretty much anywhere out here is dry. And as you went there, did like water just follow you? Is this a supernatural act? Is these people walk that the springs pop up? No, I think springs now is a figure for something else. What it means is that the people of the Lord who are praising the Lord and seeking the Lord, as they go, they bring joy, they bring hope, they bring life wherever they go. Now let's fast forward. That's, we're talking about the lyric of this, but let's talk about our engagement with the lyric. We, as the people of God, is that true of us? Have you experienced that? When you were in a dry and desert place before you knew the Lord, did a believer, did a church, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was family, did they bring springs into your life just by their very presence, by their community with you? I think that's the heart of this. 
is that the believers, the people that trust, the people that seek, that pilgrimage to the Lord, to Zion, wherever they go, it makes the place better. There's more going on here. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now, if we look at the pilgrimage, if we look at the feasts, if we look at the calendar, when the feasts were coming was about when the rainy season started. So there is also an observation about as the people are traveling through these places, the Lord is bringing water. The Lord is bringing pools. You can imagine the dust of all these people in their pilgrimage. The Lord brings the rain to tamp down the dust. But it's not just that. They bring joy because they're seeking the Lord. And it says they go from strength to strength, verse 7. From strength to strength. This is, this is one of these verses that hangs with us. Each one appears before God in Zion. From strength to strength. The Lord enables these people to seek Him. He's called them to do it. And he's given them the ability to do it. They have the ability to not do it. And they will not be blessed. And they will not be strong. And they will not bring springs. But when they do, they are strengthened. And each one appears before God in Zion. Now let's stop here as we talk about this lyric and say, what does it mean by Zion? Zion is used throughout the Bible. Say Jerusalem as well. When the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, we're talking about Zion. When we're talking about Jerusalem, we are often talking about a physical place in that time. Zion was the temple mount. Jerusalem is the place of the temple. And what is it? Important about the temple? It's the dwelling place of the Lord. The special dwelling place of the Lord. Is the Lord dwell there only? No. And in the Psalms, even David says often, your dwelling place is in heaven. But he also says, where can I go away from you? Even if I were to ascend into hell, you are there. The Lord is dwelling everywhere. But there's a special dwelling place there. And that's what Zion is. So as we we hear Zion in the New Testament, we sing the word Zion in songs we sing. Does that mean we just can't wait to get on the trip, expensive trip to the nation of Israel? Because that's our ultimate goal, is to make it to the Temple Mount, which is a very disputed piece of land and a violent place and a confusing place and a place that is worshipped by two religions that do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians as well, we put value there. But Zion is not always talking about the place of Zion. And it's not always taught, Jerusalem is not always talking about the city of Jerusalem. It's talking about the new Jerusalem. It's talking about the dwelling place of the Lord. So when it says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. For them, they are making a pilgrimage to a real place. For us, we are there. Why? Because the dwelling place of the Lord is with men, is in us. Our Zion is now... But not complete. There is a Zion to come. There is a Jerusalem to come. And it's not the city you can go fly to right now. It will come down. And it is above. And what we see now and what we saw then was a shadow of the truth to come. The Lord will restore. So when we say we, we want to be on the highways to Zion, that doesn't mean you got a ticket to the Jerusalem International Airport. It means you are on the You wish to be in the dwelling place of God. You wish to be with God. It meant that for them too. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And then verse 10. 
And we're going we're gonna to start here, and I'm going to say, we've talked about the lyric, but now let's talk about the lyric and the tune. Because verse, verse 10 gives us the tune of our worship here. Again, these are the doormen, the sons of Korah. They're at the doors, and they say, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, it just so happens they are doorkeepers in the house of God, and they recognize what a blessed place to be. As you go back and you look in the Chronicles, look in Numbers, and you, start, you see the breakdown of where they're going, the different tribes, and you get to the doorman, and you might think, well, that's not that great of a job. I'm going to be the one that's leading the, the worship, the trumpets, or I'm going to be the one that's keeping the books. Those are the guys described after in Chronicles. They keep the treasury. Well, that's got to be a vaunted position of trust and These guys say, we're the doorkeepers, and we would rather be nowhere else because we're at the dwelling place of the Lord. And to be anywhere else would not only be a thousand times worse, and by a thousand it means infinitely. It's just a big number. It would be sinful. Anywhere else would be less. It would be missing the mark. And it would be as if I was in wickedness. But to be in wickedness means I cannot be a doorkeeper in the house of my God as we look at that. So we're setting the tune here. These guys love the Lord. They love to be in his presence. The tune of this song is one of affection. So we can come, we can worship. Let's go now to our place as Christians. And our worship is one, we are indwelled by the Spirit. We are the temple, right? I am a temple, you are a temple. But not just that, we come together. Jesus says, wherever you're gathered, so shall I be. That's the temple, that's the dwelling place. When We come together. Being a Christian is not just an individual activity. It's first a corporate activity. We come together, just as it was for these people to come together and worship. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And this is just great verse as we close this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Paul affirms this in Romans 8.28 when he says, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. No good thing does he withhold. God is good. And for those who are called, those who are there, those who have come into his dwelling place, maybe the church, or for them, the temple, it's, a, it's more than that. It is to want to be in the place of God, to recognize his omnipresence, do not hide from him. We cannot hide from him. We live every moment before the face of God. We've talked about that before. And to love doing that. There's so much more in this psalm of the attributes of God, what he calls God. He calls God the Lord of hosts. He calls him the shield. Many things. But if you go back to the beginning, as many psalms, we have this chiasm where they start. If you, I, I'm putting my hands up in the air like I'm on a I'm drawing on the board here. So many psalms in Hebrew poetry, there's a statement at the beginning and there's a statement later on that relate. And then the next two do. And the next two, going up and going down. And then there's a pivot point. But if we look at this, there's a chiasm going on. If you go to verse 1, let's close with reading these again. 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Then we go back to the end. 
No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, O Lord of hosts. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. How do we trust in him? Go back to one. My soul longs, yes, faints, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. 84 is a beautiful psalm of worship of the people of God, and it's about us. So the last question is, we talked about the lyrics, we talked a little bit about the tune. Will you take part? We've seen the dynamics, the way it feels. Will you take part? It's all great to know about the song, but if you don't sing it, it's not a song. It's not your song. All of the psalms are our songs, and we should be able to sing all of them in our hearts, in our minds, many times with our voices. We sing parts of them in songs. Sometimes the songs we sing come straight from them, but will you take part in the song? Today, we're going to worship. We're going to sing songs in the old, well, there's churches that still do this, catechize, they teach, they give a series of questions and answers that a child memorizes or an adult, and that's how you know what your faith is. We sing a catechism. We sing songs over and over, new ones, old ones, that tell what we believe and help us to believe it. We're going to do that today, as the people of Israel did. We should sing it, and we should sing it from our hearts. And then we're going to continue to worship in that because we're going to observe the Lord's Supper today. We do that as a family. It's not something we go home and do that. We do it together as a church. In the dwelling place of the Lord, he is here with us now. He's here with us there. He's here with us everywhere. Let's honor him at the table today. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you that you have brought us into this place and that you dwell in this place, that you dwell in our hearts, Lord. Let us Seek to remove those things that bring dishonor to your dwelling place, to your name, to your people. Lord, help us to have a passion for your glory, for your renown, for your people, and for the place where we are in this church and in this world as we seek to show others and be good and bring fountains to dry valleys. Lord, help us to do that. Uh, We thank you for your word and we thank you for your son. We ask your protection on those who are traveling and sick, that they would join us together again in the days to come, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Oh, I was going to tell you, I didn't have time to read these. Uh, Some of you, I had read a thing from the Valley of Vision a few weeks back, and several of you said you wanted to get this book, and you couldn't. It's available again on Amazon. I guess they got more prints. Um, So if you're interested in that still... I can help you out with that.